Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. As many of you know, for the past uh, couple of months, we've been holding a series of roundtables called The Road to COP28, in which we talked about what might or might not happen at COP28. Well, COP28 went on for the past couple of weeks. Uh, It had its high points, it had its low points, um, and it finished comparatively strong, I think, for these meetings. Uh, But we thought we would go back to a couple of the folks who have been uh, chairing or who chaired several of those roundtables, uh, who both were uh, in Dubai for COP28, and get their take on what happened and on issues that they thought deserved some special focus. So joining us, uh, two old friends, David Sandelow, who's the inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy and Director of Energy and Environment Concentration at the School of International and Public Affairs at my alma mater, Columbia University. How are you doing, David? Great to see you, David. Doing well. Excellent. Uh, and Allison Agston is the inaugural director. Another, Apparently, everybody's an inaugural director. Allison is the inaugural director of USC's Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication and serves as the USC Wrigley Institute for Environmental Studies first curator. How are you, Allison? Well, David, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you're here, and I'm very glad that you're both back. Um, and uh, just like your take on, first, on, on, on just the overall outcome of COP28 and, um, and any of your own particular perspectives, let me start with you, Dave. I think you called it right, David. I think it's a relatively strong outcome. These meetings are enormous and the governmental decisions need to happen by consensus. That means more than 150 countries need to agree. As a result, progress is almost always slow and it almost always disappoints almost everybody in some respect. But with those caveats, I think some very good things were accomplished. I'm particularly pleased to see what happened on methane emissions. Uh, Methane's a very strong greenhouse gas and there were important new funding commitments, important new declarations by oil and gas companies that they would cut flaring of methane and reduce emissions, that's going to have a meaningful short-term impact on warming. There was a very important declaration from governments that they would triple 
renewable power uh, by 2030 that's above the trend line and, and is meaningful. If it actually happens, I think it'll create momentum for renewables. There were new financial commitments, very significant new financial commitments, both from governments and from the private sector. One item that hasn't gotten a lot of attention that I think is important is there was a major declaration by heads of state on the food system and the role of the food system in climate change. And then this topic that's gotten attention in the headlines the past 24, 48 hours, um, finally some mention of fossil fuels and the final political declaration. Um, you know, these political declarations are, that they reflect reality as much as they create reality. They uh, are statements of where countries are. And there was, you know, unfortunately, in my view, enormous opposition from many countries to uh, statements that fossil fuels needed to be phased out. Those countries included Saudi Arabia, China, India, Africa, the African bloc. When, when you have that amount of opposition, um, you're not going to get the strongest language. But finally, for the first time, there was language that points in the direction of the phase of the reduction, elimination of fossil fuel use, emissions from fossil fuels. And that's really important. Uh, it was great summary, but it makes it really hard for Allison. I mean, how are you going to follow up that, Allison? What are you going to add that he forgot? It's impossible. He covered it all as I knew he would. I think the conference started off with a lot of enthusiasm about the loss and damages fund. I know I was excited about that news. And since it happened at the beginning of the conference, I want to be sure we don't forget about it. I also want to note that $700 million has been committed towards that fund. Same week, my Dodger baseball team committed $700 million to Shohei Otani one of the greats of all time who will ever play. It just kind of puts Have it in Have you ordered your Otani jersey yet? Impossible, David. Sold out. Sold out. Yeah. Well, there. Thank you for asking. Yeah, no. I was on it right away. No, I bet you were. But it was, in fact, the fastest selling jersey in the history of jerseys. He's the greatest baseball player in the history of, great, of baseball players. So it makes sense. But, you know, just when you think about scale and what we're willing to put money towards and um, and what we're not, uh, it was interesting to see that number floated around in two big, very different news stories this week. Uh, I think, like David, I am thrilled to see that fossil fuels, that that language has made the cut. Um, since I think a lot about language in my work, uh, there's a lot of talk about transitional fuels and when we talk about transitional fuels, I think the three of us know what that really means. That means natural gas. And what natural gas really means is methane gas. And as David said, that is a very um, strong greenhouse gas. Additionally, I was excited because of my work in the cultural field to see that a group of friends got together, 30 culture ministers, to really start work to integrate culture and cultural heritage into the climate context, that's not going to get as much play related to the other things we're talking about, but it's still, for me, something that, uh, that I felt really excited to see. Um, that's uh, interesting and great. Let's, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, but I have to ask uh, both of you, where do you feel the meeting fell short? Or alternatively, uh, where do you feel the meeting punted issues uh, for the next uh, round of COP? David, you know we need more progress almost everywhere. David, I mean, let's maybe just a step back for a minute. It looks almost certain now that 2023 is going to be the warmest year ever. Uh, July 6, 2023, was the warmest day ever recorded. July 2023 was the warmest month ever. 
we've had epic wildfires, epic floods, extraordinary heat waves around the planet. We are living in an age of consequences uh, with the climate crisis all around us. So the type of progress that's made at a meeting like this is never sufficient. Uh, we need, uh, uh, you know, among the things we need in the short term, I think, is much more on methane emissions. Methane can have reduction in methane emissions can have such an important impact in the short term. And we need to mobilize much more money. There was great progress there, but there needs to be so much more. And, and I mean, Allison's comparison there um, with Otani and, and, you know, one person and the entire uh, one person's contract and the amount of money that's pledged overall for, for loss and damage for billions of people in the developing world is just, it, it, it's astonishing. And it, it's, an, uh, we, we need to mobilize several orders of magnitude, more capital, um, to help people adapt to climate change around the world. So there's, there's just an enormous amount more to do. You know, I thought it was a great analogy too, Allison, and it ties directly into the work that you've been doing on, you know, the role of the media and the coverage of the climate crisis, because either the media makes this appear to be the biggest issue in the world and relatable to the average person, or nothing gets done. Uh, and, you know, therefore, for a long time, I think the media um, has played an inadequate role um, uh, uh, in, in, in covering these issues. Uh, how do you feel about this meeting from that perspective? I think it's really tempting in these situations, a big meeting like this, so much material to parse through, to pick a side, to go with a binary and a bold headline that says, uh, as suspected, oil man can't lead conference displeased with results or historic conference fossil fuels finally mentioned. It's so much harder in these circumstances to come at it with nuance. And I think nuance is absolutely required because it's a mixed bag. We all know we're working in reality that you're probably not going to get language about a fossil fuel phase out immediately. It's going to take time. And of course, the fear is, do we have enough time? So I will always want to see more nuance. It might be at the expense of clicks, though. It might be at the expense of readers who want to have a yes or no answer. Was this conference worth it or not? To me, it was. But as David said, there's always more we can do. But that takes time. It just takes time. No, David, climate change has been called a wicked hard problem. Uh, and it, it is... Let me guess from where the person who said that is from. <laughs> wicked hard. Wicked hot, yeah. But it's look, it's a problem that's caused by invisible odorless gases. And although scientists tell us that it is moving at a pace unprecedented in the history of humanity, literally, it can it's often hard to see in everyday life. It's just it is a very hard problem um, to address from a media or a political standpoint. Here's what I have to say though, after chairing the Road to Cop program that had Michael Mann and many other luminary climate communicators, all of us agree pretty much across the board that the extreme weather we experienced this summer is terrible for people, animals, and other living things, but useful for storytelling. Because climate change this summer moved a little bit from abstraction into reality. So now when we say we need to do something about climate change, people know based on their personal experiences. And I'm hoping that that will continue to propel us forward. So let me let me ask you another, an, another kind of question, slightly put you on the spot, David. But um, you know 
the guy who chaired the meeting, Sultan Al-Jabri. You've known him for a long time since he was back doing um, Mazdar. Um, and as everybody knows who listened to our road to COP28, the embassy of the UAE um, underwrote COP28. So I have to be completely upfront about that. Although what they also said was, we want independent discussions. We want independent shares. Um, uh, we want to present these discussions live. Uh, and I think anybody who listened to the series heard that because there were all sorts of criticisms and critiques. Um, and nobody was sort of in the crosshairs more than 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 Sultan, who who chaired this whole thing. Um, how do you how do you think that they did um, in in ushering this process through? Because thirty six hours before the end of the conference, it looked like a mess. You know, and, and it was like, oh my God, this is going to have a bad outcome. And then at the at the very end, you know, you had the New York Times writing an article saying, you know, essentially one of those two headlines that Allison came up with was, you know, oil man comes up with remarkable, you know, t- you know, turnabout and conclusion for this thing. And so, you know, you you saw the management of what is clearly an unwieldy multilateral process, two hundred government entities trying to achieve consensus, how'd it go? I think Sultan al-Jabra did an excellent job with one exception, uh, and hu- huge praise to him for both the management of the COP process um, coming into the meeting and then at the very end. So uh, coming into the meeting, I think he did an excellent job of bringing oil and gas companies from around the world to the table and uh delivering some meaningful commitments from the from those companies and and i think that's hugely important for, for the global climate and he took arrows for for doing some of this but but i think at the end of the day it's very important that 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 happened um and uh and, and then i think he kept the process together and at the very end as you were pointing to it looked like the meeting was going to fall apart and it takes a, a strong leader to pull together a declaration of the type that he did and um as a brief digression, David, I just to date myself, I was a, a a member of the U.S. delegation at COP one. This is COP twenty eight. Um, so I've seen. Surely you were. Surely you were a small child at the time. Uh, no, I. I, I uh, <laughs> David was David was the youth representative. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I will say I have seen strong leaders and weak leaders in these cops. But by the way, the president of COP one was a very talented young environment minister of Germany named Angela Merkel. And she did an excellent job pulling together COP1. And um, the French leadership did a great job pulling together COP15 in Paris. And, um, and I, I think uh, I think Sultan al-Jabra did a very good job of pulling this meeting together. Uh, there was an unfortunate um, uh, meeting he had a couple of weeks before the COP um, where he said them things about the science of getting to net zero that got him some bad press, I think deservedly, you know, during the COP. Um, but uh, but with, I think when you're in the public eye, to, you know, um, uh, this type of thing happens. And and uh, with with that exception, and uh, other than that, I think he did. I think he did a really excellent job in in moving this COP process forward. Uh, very interesting. So, Allison. COP has gone from, you know, being this high-level government meeting to being, you know, climate con, you know, the big gathering of everybody who has anything to do with climate, you know, people who are selling, you know, climate merch, people who are, 
you know, advancing policy agendas, uh, journalists, um, uh, you know, just, I don't know what the number was, 30, 40,000. I mean, some giant number of people. 70, seven, that's what I heard. 70,000 people. Well, did you hear that too, David? 70,000 people? I, I did. Something like that? It, it's quite a pageant. Amazing. A pageant. That's a beautiful way to put it. So, Allison, as you made your way through this pageant, what was the vibe? Well, you know, it's interesting because many times this exact week, this exact time of year, I have been in Art Basel, Miami. So I thought a lot about the comparison of you are so certain you are so fancy. Oh yeah, yeah. fancy. Uh huh. <laughs> Sitting up here in my attic, yeah. talking. Yeah. Uh, I I couldn't help but make comparisons about these large convenings of industry people that started out with one purpose and have kind of gone in other directions. Uh, the vibe was different at both, but it was very interesting. I actually spent um, an hour one day sitting in a courtyard, writing down all of my observations, just trying to take in the visual culture and make something of it. And because, um, you know, I noticed pretty quickly that there are, this might be a UN conference and not uh, an upscale art fair, but there is still plenty of flexing that goes on, for example. And as you may already know, what color badge do you have? What stripe is on the badge you have? And the biggest flex I saw of all, which maybe only people who would listen to a Road to Pod Cop podcast would understand, is a woman walking around in a Sunny Lens hat. Oh, so you know, really, really showing that they've yeah. they've mm-hmm. they've they've been to the mountaintop. Um, they've been to the mountaintop. I also um, have been tracking climate memes since this summer because it was around the summer that I noticed there was a different kind of dialogue that was rooted in jokes that were presumed a wide audience would understand uh, in the form of memes. And I saw some really funny, uh, I thought, well, you're not going to get, you know, just basic climate memes that anybody would understand. You know, people are friends who maybe not don't do this kind of work, but I saw some real deep cut, uh, cop climate memes, which were um, pretty interesting. Overall, I found the mix of people to be incredibly energizing. So you're going to tell us you saw these deep cut climate memes and you're not going to tell us one. Okay, uh, here's one. Picture this. It is, let's say, five guys and they are all dressed in camouflage. They look like military. But there is one guy in the middle sort of poking his head out and uh, He's in a clown costume and the people that are in the military outfits are all labeled party. The guy in the clown costume is labeled party overflow. It's not, it's not a, it's not a joke for outsiders. I don't think. <laughs> um, well, it's, no, it's useful to get the vibe. Now, David, you, you revealed that you, you attended cop one, which was in 1995. Um, and so that's 28 years ago. And so one of the things that's occurred over the course of that period of time, and you'll forgive me for saying so, because you look young and fresh as ever, is a generational shift. And, you know, you've got a new generation of government leaders coming into this for whom the climate crisis has been a permanent reality of their lives, which was not the case in 1995. How does that affect the the way this goes? Profoundly. 
there has been a shift in political attention to this issue that's dramatic. Um, and and we have you just said it well. Uh, it's we have people coming in who've, who've grown up with the climate crisis. They've grown up professionally with the climate crisis, are deeply committed to it, uh, and that's hugely important for the future of uh, of addressing this issue. I had an experience that almost was almost surreal. It was so funny in the COP in this regard. I you know people. The, the the grounds where this was held were vast. I mean, a couple square miles, I think. And in order to get around, people were riding on these open air buses. And I was on an kind of open air trolley. And across from me was the girl who I would, I don't know exactly, I would guess is eight or nine years old and was talking, she was talking nonstop. And she was telling us, the group was there, that she was the youngest official speaker at the COP. And then you couldn't make this up, but but who got on? But a man dressed up as Santa Claus who said that he was sustain a clause. And I, I said, this is just a surreal experience. Here I am at a cop listening. And then, of course, he started talking with this girl, listening to a young girl, passionate about climate change, talking to sustain a clause. Uh, I guess that gives me hope for the future. I, for one, am delighted by those anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that's interesting. But, you know, where does it, what does it tell us about where this is likely to go because you know i you know ke- keeping to the goal of 1.5 degree temperature rise and keeping to the goal you know i mean the i think the phase out of fossil fuels was for 2050 which may or may not get you there under the line there are other goals in terms of moving towards um uh uh, uh you know, different forms of, of, of more sustainable energy generation. Um, there was, you know, as, as I understand it, there was not as much talk about non-energy sources of climate uh, problems uh, as perhaps there, there should have been at, at, at all of this. But did you leave the meeting, Allison, more optimistic, pessimistic? With big questions about the process, encouraged. I'm just, I'm just interested in, in, you know, what the vibe was. You know, you get back home to LA, known as one of the world's most uh, 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 clean and climate friendly cities. And I'm joking, um, but but when you're talking to people about this, you know, what did you say? Like, oh, oh my goodness, X. What did you say? And I talk to people about it all the time. I literature shows that the more we talk about it, the greater the impact that we have a chance to normalize to socialize climate change by talking about it. This is how we can get it into the broader dialogue. This is how we end up with sustainability clause or whatever he calls himself on the train at COP. So when I was in the airplane on one of my flights home, I began talking with a flight attendant. She said, how, how do you think it went? And I said, you know, I feel pretty good about it. I feel pretty optimistic. And uh, I said, I think we're making progress. I felt uh, a really positive surge of energy when I was there. Um, a lot of great work going on across sectors, lots of young people involved, uh, engagement, uh, from people from countries of all sizes and with all different kinds of economic resources. And then the plane landed and I, of course, checked the news immediately and I read 
you know, Al Gore saying this is the biggest disaster ever, worst cop ever, things are going poorly. This latest version of the agreement is a mess. And I thought, oh God, I misspoke to this woman and, and she's going to think that this is my idea of good. And then I get up the next morning and it's like, great news, fossil fuels has made the cut, you know? So for me and, and probably everybody else, it felt like a real roller coaster, especially in those final days of negotiation. I didn't really know how I felt and I, I'm still processing it a little bit. Um, I have, in advance of our conversation, read every single thing I could find under the sun, every bit of analysis to be sure that I could bring every available perspective. And I still go back to that feeling that I'm overall like, okay, we're getting there, but God, we have so much work to do. It can be hard to hold those two at the same time, but I think we simply must. What Same question, Dave. I agree with Allison. Look, bottom line, we are failing in addressing this problem. We know what we need to do to address the problem of climate change. Emissions need to fall dramatically. They're not even falling. Emissions continue to rise every year. So as a world, we are not succeeding in addressing this problem. But this meeting made important progress on a number of different important areas in addressing it. And, and I think that's all one can reasonably ask from, or that, that that's all it's possible in a meeting like this is going to deliver. And so I think this meeting was a success and in that respect. And if you hold it to the standard, did it solve the problem? No, it didn't solve the problem. But that that's, this meeting is never going to solve the problem overall. One of the important impacts of a meeting like this, so I think it's exactly what Allison was just describing, which is that people come home energized from it. You know, they, they meet with people from around the world who were working on this hard. They come back with energy to take on this hard problem. Like I think we learned during the pandemic how important these face-to-face meetings are. Uh, so I think it's it's a very important contribution to solving the problem. Just to go back to a question that I asked earlier, but we didn't. I didn't really kind of get the clear answer. What next? Like, what's the next set of priorities, the things that really need to be addressed? Um, Where's the next cup? It's like in Azerbaijan or someplace? The, the next cup is going to be in Baku, Azerbaijan, which is um, uh, not a place that climateers have met in large numbers in the past. It's going to be interesting. Um, look, what, what, one important thing that comes next, David, is... Um, the national climate action plans that every country will be doing. So under the Paris Agreement, um, every country in the next couple of years needs to prepare something, uh, national climate action plans, which go by the the name nationally determined contributions. That's really going to be where a lot of the action is. Um, and uh, the global stock take that was just agreed to will set a, set a good path for that. Then I think there's a lot of action in the private sector that's going to be important too. And then one area that I'm excited about that, that I've been working on, I released a report on this at the COP, is on the hot topic of AI and climate change. Our, our, our report, uh, we looked at the question, how can artificial intelligence help reduce emissions of greenhouse gases? And our conclusion is there's a number of very important ways. Um, and you know, just briefly on that, one important way, for example, is accelerating innovation. When, when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, he took months to look at different types of carbon filaments and different materials to figure out which one would work best. It, with AI tools now, you can do that type of work a million times in a second. And, and that type of innovation is is now possible and is, I think, going to be an important part of solving the climate crisis. So I'm, I'm excited about that as a next step. So Edison, too, Edison in the age of AI would say invention was 99% inspiration and 1% perspiration. <laughs> 
he would change he would change his statement. The same question to you, Elsa. I'm really interested to hear David's perspective on AI because I've been thinking about it a lot, but from a, a different angle. I recently wrote uh, an essay on ways that we can use AI to advance climate journalism. And it's funny, I was training training a large body of international journalists shortly after I wrote this essay and I talked to them about it and their editor balked when I mentioned it. This is still really uncomfortable territory using AI for journalists. It's threatening to careers. There's lots of mistrust. But I think, for example, when you have a massive document come out like the IPCC report, Journalists are given what, like 24 hour embargo to parse this thing that is so dense. The only reason, in my opinion, you would ever read the IPCC report is if you're forced to because it's your job. It is otherwise a very unwieldy document. And I bet David gets what's going on in there a lot more than I do, but it's it's pretty intense. So we ran an experiment asking AI to pull out the top 10 insights from the IPCC report as a journalist would. And then we looked at what ChatGPT generated alongside five major news articles that came out the day the IPCC report was released and the embargo was lifted. And we were pretty impressed that that AI did a good job of catching the summary. I'm not saying nor do I imagine I ever will, that AI should be writing these climate stories, but rather it can be used as a tool to parse incredibly dense and extensive information so that journalists can spend more time rounding out their stories with some of the information that really matters that's not necessarily the data, but that lends, for example, a human element. What, what do you think of that, David? I'm just, yeah, I saw you nodding. I'm just, what, what are interest in your yeah, Absolutely fascinating, Alison. Really interesting point. And I think uh, there's been this revolution in the capabilities of large language models. They can now put out, you know, pretty decent summaries, uh, you know, almost instantaneously. Uh, still need human eyes in order to make sure that they're really good. But but the best comparison I heard was it's ChatGPT is like having 50 super fast interns uh, who will give you a great first draft. And you probably wouldn't turn it into your client or boss, but, but it, it, it's a great start. Um, one area related to that that I'm excited about in the climate world, as well as more broadly, is the language translation capabilities of these large language models. Now, it's just remarkable in how they're breaking down language barriers. Uh, that has a lot of social implications. But in the climate world, I think it's opening up English language literature to people around the world who may not have English language facilities, and that can help with scientific disse- dissemination of scientific information. And then the other way, too, is I think it's going to open up indigenous knowledge uh, that's in languages that people that, that may not be well understood um, to to the wider world. So I think it's some real transformational opportunities there. Yeah, I think I, th- I think so. By the way, most people who listen to our podcast know that we take a break and then two thirds of the way through and tell people that they can't keep listening unless they're members. I'm not going to do that here because I think this is really important. And I think people should listen to the whole way through, but I don't want to dissuade you from becoming a member. So if you want to become a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's like five bucks a month. It's not a lot, but it allows us to do this. And one of the things we want to do is we want to keep covering this issue because this amazing thing happened. We talked about doing a road to COP28 thing. We put together these five roundtables. Each one became two podcasts. We did a couple of one-on-one podcasts in and around all of that. Um, and over the course of us podcasting, 
this became the number one climate podcast in the world. It, you know, in other words, we had a bigger audience than all the top five climate podcasts out there. Uh, and so we thought, well, you know, our audience really is nerdier than we thought. Um, uh, but this is also an issue that we, we want to keep covering. And so, uh, you know, go become a member and help enable us to, uh, to, to, to do that, that kind of thing. Um, uh, just let me go back to the AI question, uh, David. Uh, you know, we've, we've learned a lot about AI in the past year. ChatGPT made its debut 54 weeks ago, I think. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's an amazingly new thing. Um, and there's a just an awesome amount of bullshit out there about AI. And somebody, I was having a meeting with a bunch of Washington people, and they said, you know, right now in Washington, D.C., if you want to make people uh, think you're smart, you add AI to the sentence. You know, and so, and we'll have to look at the AI implications of this. And there's always something like that in Washington. But we've also learned some other things, which is AI can enable a lot of things. You can go and you can say to AI, okay, well, the IPCC report came out. What in it is relevant to the work I'm doing? And it can do you, you know, five bullet points and you can read it. And there's a bias, which we've seen in some people. Um, and I can give you a bunch of examples where people just say, okay. I trust it, you know, or if you say, well, I'm going to let AI sort of evaluate all this data, um, they don't double check it and it makes mistakes. Um, and uh, there are biases built into the AI. And, the, and by the way, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. You know, if there were a sort of pro-climate, you know, awareness bias built into the AI model you've got, um, that might be helpful in, in influencing audiences. Uh, so the algorithm has the possibility of doing influencing. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, as you're looking at all of this, uh, people talk about the net positives. You did this study, David, on, on the net positives. What do you worry about as the potential net negatives? Oh, how long have you got, David? There, um, uh, there, there are a number of them, and they require very close attention. You were just pointing to one which is bias and these AI models uh, are significant risk for bias. Uh, and and that's both in the way they're designed and also by the way the historic the way the historic data gets fed in. So for example, if in the climate area, if you're feeding in data that mainly comes from rich countries, the AI model may not do a very good job of predicting or optimizing for things that happen in developing countries. There's also risks related to privacy. Uh, and releasing data. And there's a lot of good things, for example, that you can do with um, utility data um, in managing electric grids, but you've got to be very careful that personal data doesn't get released in the course of that. There's safety risks uh, from, from AI if it gets used inappropriately or, um, uh, or, or um, just doesn't do a good job, particularly if it's being used operationally. It can cause some big problems. And then there's also risks of increased greenhouse gas emissions, by the way. Um, and, and this is a big area of uncertainty because we know the use of AI is going to increase exponentially and it takes a lot of energy to do that. We also expect that the efficiency of the AI systems will improve, both hardware and software. And so if the efficiency, we need the efficiency to improve more than the use uh, increases. Um, and, and then we need to use renewable energy in, 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 uh, for the computing centers. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have increased ga greenhouse gas emissions. So there's there's a number of risks. Uh, we talk about them all in our report, which is, I guess, 
called Artificial Intelligence for Climate Change Mitigation Roadmap, if you're interested in looking for it. Uh, but it's really important to issues. And final is there, is there a place that's posted on the web that people can find them? It, it is. Here's the, here's the URL, icef.go.jp. I'll say it one more time, icef.go.jp, or just Google my name and AI climate change mitigation, and I think you'll You know, i got to tell you, whoever you guys are working with, hire somebody like Allison. Like, the, you know, you know, you know, it's got it's got it's somebody needs to say, go to our website, oh my god, climateandai.com, you know, or something like that. You, know, you don't like iocp.jd.gov.edu? Yeah. <laughs> fancy, David? But David, you know, last comment. I know you are working on this topic as well, and I'm looking forward to reading what what you're writing, what you will write on AI, because I know this is a topic you've got a lot of expertise on. Well, you're very you're very nice to say so, um, and uh, I, I hope someday I actually finish that book. Um, Allison, let me ask you a slightly different question. But you know, the, David talked about what he was doing there. You went to this culture thing. You also hosted a roundtable that we did on on culture um, and climate. Um, what was the culture thing like, and were there any big takeaways from that? I was just really surprised that culture was at the table. That was the greatest shock of all to me. And it was thrilling how well-versed so many culture ministers were on environmental impacts of climate change, on culture, on the record of human history. And the plans that are coming, hopefully by COP 2030, are really energizing. I think that culture can be considered a solution to plenty of issues, including climate change. And I can't wait to see how these brilliant minds help get it all the way there. I think both of the things that you've been dealing with are about storytelling, about providing a lens through which to talk about these things, but also providing a way of looking at them that resonates with people at an emotional level or at some other level and not purely at an intellectual level. Um, and that's really important if you want to mobilize people towards uh, action. David, we've got about two, three minutes here. Uh, I've asked a bunch of questions um, from the perspective of somebody who wasn't there. I want to give each of you two minutes to uh, give me a view on whatever it was I didn't ask about that struck you while you were at COP28 or that you think people ought to have as a takeaway that they may not have seen in the media as a whole. I'll start. So, so I, for me, one of the striking things of walking around that complex was how many people were there, and just the incredible diversity of of people from um, all different countries, all different perspectives, um, all coming together to work on this issue. That was very different than COP one back in 1995. COP one in 1995 was, I would say you know, 80 or 90% government negotiators without a lot of civil society. And and this is now, these climate change cops have now become major global events with, you know, 80 heads of state and countless CEOs and, and more. And um, I think the energy that's flowing into this is hugely important and and the number of young people um, as well, uh, hugely important. So that, that's what gives me hope. Um, in addressing this really challenging issue. Um, thank, thank you for that. And go ahead, Allison, your take. Uh, something that was really 
exciting and also hard for me to see is how hard these youth leaders are working and how exhausted it's making them. I just really hope that they can stick with it. Um, I gave a series of talks at the Actionist Hub when I was there. The first one was specifically for youth leaders. And these young people came up to me afterwards saying, am I doing it wrong? I'm so overwhelmed. How am I going to keep this up? So uh, I think that the mental health aspect of this work of, as David said, climateers deserves a little bit more uh, focus and attention. It certainly made me think about how I can better support the students that I'm working with. As you may know, this year there was, for the first time in the Blue Zone, a faith p- pavilion. And I stopped by there, really enjoyed myself, and got some uh, great resources for how we can support these young people. But uh, I think when you're working on an issue as big as this one, it doesn't solve overnight. And it's pretty hard to pour yourself into something and not see the results you want right away. So we got to help lift these young people up as much as we can. Sustainability squared, sustainable sustainability activism. Um, uh, it's, it sounds also like a very important issue. You guys have been great. You've been great in the roundtables. You've been great in reporting out from COP28. I think your insights are terrific. And I hope we can coax you back to be involved in some way with our coverage of this going forward. Um, so thank you, David, very much. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, everybody, uh, for listening. And I, I promise there will be more of this starting in January uh, each and every week because uh, we think this is vitally important and also uh, extremely interesting if covered properly. For more on that, go see Allison. That's her job. But uh, for now, thanks to all of you, and bye-bye.